How many people here have heard of Rabbi, I want to kick this thing over here, Rabbi Ben Kosher? Anyone? No one had ever heard of him until um, about 1944 or so. We found some records of this Rabbi Ben, actually it's Rabbi Ben Koshabar. See, even I can't remember his name. There's a guy who was hailed in the first part of the second century, 135. Uh, his exact date. He was hailed as the Messiah by millions and millions of Jews, not being the Son of God or divine in any sense, but just hailed as being the one who was going to deliver Israel and bring them back to Jerusalem and set up Jerusalem as a great empire. He was so famous among the Jews of the diaspora, that is to say the Jews scattered out throughout the world, that they actually had their money printed up with his name on their currency. And land deeds were transacted with his name on those land deeds. He was so powerful that the Roman government finally began to worry about him and decided to put a stop to this rumor. And it took about two-thirds of Tiberius' army to squelch uh, this Messiah with his crowds. Over 50 Jewish cities were utterly destroyed and 500,000 Jews were, were killed. And yet his name just disappeared from history until just recently. Here was a man who died on a cross, an obscure death as a criminal, and even the few band of loyal followers that he had forsook him and were scared and cowered in an upper room. And yet this guy has changed the whole world. What's the difference? Ben Koshaber is still dead. Jesus Christ is alive. And that's what makes the difference. There's a, a movie, well first, first, first let me, before I talk about movies, let's read the passage this morning. It comes out of 1 Corinthians 15, a, a powerful passage. Incidentally, let me just say, I'm so glad to see all of you all dressed up in your Easter outfits. You know, for those of you who are visiting here, you need to know that I have been trying for about a year and a half to passionately preach about proper church attire, and this church doesn't get it. Uh, <laughs> Even Paul are hardly ever wears a tie, and it's just frustrating. And it's good to see we finally <laughs> come look. Seriously, if anybody here ribs me once more about how nice I look and how good the tie, you know, I'm gonna. I don't know, what I'll do. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. For if the dead, this is in your bulletin, 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 through 19. If the dead are not raised, Paul says, then Christ hasn't been risen either. And if Christ isn't raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. In fact, if Christ isn't raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are completely lost. They're gone forever. You see, for if in this life alone we have hope in Christ, if this thing isn't true about the resurrection, we are to be pitied more than all men. Our life is pitiful. The last part of this chapter, as Paul argues the resurrection... Is this up a little too high? As Paul argues the resurrection here, in, in verse 55 of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this, Death, because the resurrection is true, death has been swallowed up in victory. And so he says, almost with a triumphant chuckle, a triumphant tr chuckle, Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Thanks be to God, he has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, uh, let this come alive, Lord. This is not just a bare historical fact we're talking about here, Lord. This is the most important 
thing that was ever done in the history of humanity. I pray, God, that you would, through the power of your spirit, use it to revolutionize our life, Lord, and, and use this message right now to make it a revolutionary thing in our life. And I especially, Lord, have in my heart those who are here this morning that have maybe never put their trust in Jesus Christ and have never come to grips with the resurrection. I pray, God, this morning would be their birthday into your kingdom, that they'd be saved this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Now let me tell you about the movie. Anyone here ever see the movie, um, wasn't it? Gosh, great opening line. Runaway Train. Right, some of you have seen the movie Runaway Train? Um, just so you're not shocked, it's about two convicts who talk like real convicts in this movie. So when you go and check out the movie, make sure you're 17 years old or older. And don't get mad at me if you end up being, you know. But it's a good show, aside from that. Um, I always tend to read too much philosophy and theology into movies. I'm always accused of that. I find theological motifs in just about anything. But I'm sure in this case I'm right. This is a profoundly philosophical theological movie. It is. It's about a train that's run away. Uh, these two convicts escape from prison. They stow away on this train. The, the engineer of the train dies. And in the end, you have this train that's going faster and faster and faster down these tracks. Uh, the authorities have to put it onto some tracks that don't have a destination in order to control it. The only thing they can do with this runaway train is put it on these tracks that are incomplete, and eventually the train's going to run out of track and crash. Well, these two stowaway convicts, and it turns out there's a woman who is hiding there too, um, begin to ascertain this. And the whole plot of the movie, I know it doesn't sound exciting, but it's really good, is about how they come to grips with that. They're on a train. It's going faster and faster. They know it's going to run out of track here any second. What do you do? And, the, and, and in the end, the final scene of the movie has the, the star convict up on top of one of the, uh, the, the train Cabooses, whatever they call it, carts. There it is. And, and he's going like this into the wind, going off into the snowstorm, and uh, it disappears. And I believe that this producer is uh, some Japanese guy. I can't remember his name either. I'm just kind of drawing blanks all over the place. But um, what he's trying to say, he's giving us, I think, a metaphor of life, how he perceives life. All of you who are over 20 understand that the, the longer you live, the faster it goes. Isn't that the case? It goes faster and faster and faster. The last 10 years seemed like one year when I was 15. This train is picking up speed. But where is this train going to? If you just go by your physical senses, just go by what you can judge from your senses, it looks like it's going nowhere. It looks like we're going to die. And we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know how we're going to die, but we know we are going to die. And what this producer is saying is that the only thing to do in such a situation is to try to face your death courageously. Sneer at it. The question I want to ask this morning is this. Is that an accurate portrayal of life or not? You see, if death is the end, if, in fact, what appears to be true in terms of our physical senses, if that is the whole story and death is the last word, then I think this producer has hit the nail on the head. That's why it's such a profound movie. If death is the last word, then life ultimately is tragic. The final word about life is that it's tragic. The final word about life is that we end up six feet below the ground. And the final word about life is that all that we think we accomplish, all that we think is important, all that we aspire to, all that we achieve, whatever fame we think we got, whatever recognition we think we got, it goes down six feet with us. That's the final word to be said. 
If death is the final word, sadness is the final word, tragedy is the final word, despair is the final word. If death is the final word, then our lives are utterly, utterly meaningless. Everything we think is so important, we spend our time with, we spend our time thinking about and striving for, it all comes to nothing. However long or however short you live, whatever your life was like, however moral or however immoral, whatever great deeds you did or whatever great deeds you didn't do, or whether you were even born or not, comes to nothing. It comes to zero. What difference will it all have made? You say, well, I'll make a difference to my children. Well, they die too. And their children's children die. And death finally wins. Grave has, the grave has an incredible sting. Death has an incredible victory if death has the final word. And the whole kitten caboodle is absurd. There's no rhyme or reason to it. You live. You die. You raise kids. You get a job. You suffer. That's all there is to it. There's no reason why, the, why, 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 the, why you're in the train, why there is a train, why the train is on these tracks, why the train is going this speed, why the train is going in that direction. There's no rhyme, no reason to it all. It just is. It's absurd. If death is the last word. And if death is the last word, it means that everything that makes us distinctly human is out of sync with this universe. We long for life to be meaningful. That's why we pour ourselves into our jobs and our families or whatever, because we, we want to convince ourselves that our life has a little bit of meaning, that we're not just complex protoplasm in a state of decay. It's the truth. We long for meaning. We long for a purpose. We desire for something to... We have this conviction. We have this conviction that, that morality counts. Most people do anyways. That goodness is a good thing and evil is a bad thing. But if death is the end, that conviction is just silliness. All end up alike under the same plot of land. If death is the last word, our longing for life to be meaningful, our, our conviction that good should triumph over evil, it is all useless, it is all futile, it's all unmet. And for just that reason, I believe that we have in the core of our hearts the conviction that death therefore cannot be the end. I believe that every person in this auditorium, in the depths of their heart, if they're honest with themselves, knows intuitively that this can't be all there is to life. Your heart knows it. Your heart says this, if you listen to it. How could the world, how could nature produce beings such as ourselves that are so utterly out of sync with this world? Nature never produces creatures by blind evolutionary chance, they say. Nature never produces creatures that have needs that the world can't meet. It produces creatures that hunger because there's food and that outrun what it can give. Like fish out of water on a, on, a, on, a, on a beach in the Sahara. There are no beaches in the Sahara, but in the Sahara. We're like fish saying, we, we, we want water, we need water, but there's never been such a thing as water. There's no such thing. It never exists, never could exist. So also us, we have this longing for life to be meaningful, for there to be purpose, for, for good to triumph over evil, and yet the universe is utterly impersonal, it's meaningless, it doesn't give a rip about your morality, a rip about your aspirations, and we're longing for something that the universe could never give, this giant rock that, that we call existence, it never could give it. How is that possible? Think of it this way, kind of a, a strange analogy, but most of my analogies are strange, but you remember them, don't you? You go, down to, uh, you go down to the Amazon. You go down to the Amazon, and there uh, you find a tribe. You're an anthropologist from the University of Minnesota. That's what you are. And you go down there, and you're studying Amazon tribes. And you find this one tribe that spends all of its time trying to fashion snow skis. 
They're, they're cutting, constantly cutting down, and they argue about the snow skis. They're, they're trying, you know, they're, and they talk about snow. But not only that, they have this deep, profound desire. It defines their essence as human beings in the Amazon. This burning desire to snow ski. It's always important. They crave it morning, noon, and night. It's, it really is there. Oh, they try to find other distractions, other things like hunting food, whatever, to get their minds off of skiing. But skiing is what they really want to do. Told you it was a bizarre analogy. Well, you'd have to ask this question. Where did this tribe in the Amazon get the idea that there ever existed snow? They've never seen it. And where did they ever get the idea that you can go snow skiing? There's no hills in the Amazon. There's no snow in the Amazon. There's no skis in the Amazon. Where did they get this idea? And not only that, but where did they get the idea? Where did they get the longing, the intense, burning, passionate desire to go snow skiing? They've never seen it done. They don't know what it's like, but there it is right there, this tribe in the Amazon. And you, as an anthropologist from the University of Minnesota, would have to come up with some explanation for that. Somewhere along the line, these people have been exposed to snow. They've been at the Afton Alps. Somehow they all got up to Alaska or something. You need an explanation, and it's just the same way with us. Here we have creatures that long for things, that have this irrational, odd, passionate desire for life to be meaning. We're always disappointed with life. It's a painful thing because it never measures up. It never meets our needs. It's never what we expected. Our heart outruns what this world can give us. The question you've got to ask yourself, and that your heart already is answering, is how does that come about? Doesn't this tell you that your origin and your destiny outruns what this world can give you. Your heart knows that death can't be the final word. But not only does your heart know it, but if you look at it in an objective way, in an honest way, and I can't make the case here this morning, but if you look at the evidence, and the evidence I'm referring to has to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the stuff that we just saw in the video, your mind says yes to it as well. You need to ask yourself some important questions. If you're here this morning and you've never made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and accepted him as the Lord and Savior of your life, you've got to ask some serious questions here. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if there was no resurrection, whatever gave the disciples the impression that Jesus rose from the dead, like people down in the Amazon who think about snow, you've got to account for why they were so convinced Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. What transformed? You've got to ask yourself this question. If, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what transformed this cowardly band of, of wayward, kind of ignorant disciples in this upper room, scared for their lives, what transformed them into a bunch of dynamic evangelists that turned the world upside down? And it happened overnight. What explains that? And what explains the fact that they could successfully preach the resurrection in Jerusalem, which is only 10 minutes away from where Jesus was buried, they preached it among a hostile audience, but they did it with incredible effectiveness so that Christianity exploded in the first century. What explains that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Anybody with a third of a brain could have gone and checked out to see if the tomb really was empty. It's just 10 minutes down the road, folks. This isn't some story that was told over years and years and centuries and centuries and, and the story of the fish story got bigger and bigger. This happened right in the backyard of the tomb where Jesus lay. How did the tomb get empty? You know, Christianity among historical religions is the only tombless religion. The Buddhists still venerate what they think are the tombs, uh, the, the bones of, of Buddha. Uh, uh, Muslims make, make a pilgrimage to Mecca every year to, to visit the tomb of Muhammad. Marxists still honor the body of, 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 of Lenin, and Jews still uh, venerate the tomb of Abraham and, and, uh, and David. But here's the odd thing. We, we, we've got uh, the founder of Christianity, the one who claimed to be the son of God. We don't know where he's buried. It's kind of an odd thing because he's not buried. How do you explain that if there is no resurrection? The long and short of it this morning is this. 
If you look at the total scheme of things, your heart says yes to the resurrection. Your mind says yes to the resurrection. The longings for meaning in your life says yes to the resurrection. The aspirations for, for a purpose in life, for joy in life, for love to conquer evil, it all says yes to the resurrection. And the Christian claim is this, that when you do say yes to the resurrection, when you make that conscious decision and accept the Lord as your Savior, you're not just believing in some wayward, bygone historical fact. You're believing in a reality that's going to impact your life now and impact your life beyond the grave because the Bible says that all who receive Christ share in his resurrection. The Bible says he's the firstborn among many brothers. All who trust in him shall be raised. The Bible says we shall see him as he is, for we shall be like him. And the glory of his resurrected body will be our body. The joy that he shares will be our joy. The peace that he reigns with will be our peace to all who receive him. Before I even go any further, I want to say this. I want to give this invitation. Do not this morning, I implore you, do not leave this morning if you haven't made certain in your mind that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life and surrendered all to him. Do it this morning. Do it this morning. Align yourself with the one who is the Son of God so that all the things the Bible says about the resurrection apply to you. This isn't just a fact, however, that's going to impact us when we die. The resurrection, if we get a grip on it, and this is what I, I want to finish up with here this morning, it is something that impacts our life right now. Because the resurrection, if we think about it clearly, is it changes entirely the meaning of death, and by changing the meaning of death, it changes the meaning of our life. So Paul can say with this triumphant laugh, Oh, death, grim reaper that you are, where's your sting? Where's your victory? It's gone. If death is the last word, the grim reaper hangs over us all the time because it, it indicts us. We try to forget about it. We try to absorb ourselves in other things. But we know in our heart of hearts that it all is meaningless. The sting of death is felt even while we're still alive because we know that it's there. But the promise of the resurrection, the meaning of the resurrection is that that sting has been taken away and that stone has been rolled away, that burden has been lifted, and the entire meaning of death and therefore the entire meaning of life has been changed. What the resurrection means is this, that death doesn't have the final word. What the resurrection means is this, that that which looks like it is the end to our physical eyes is not the end at all. It rather is the beginning. Rather than being something that is despairing and a downer and lousy, it's something that for the believer in the resurrection you can actually look to, look forward to. It is not a tragic end note to our otherwise meaningless lives. In fact, what the resurrection means is this. This life that we know, this short little flicker of time that we call our existence, whether it be 20 years or 100 years, this is but a preparatory stage for what God ultimately has planned for us. We are, as the Bible itself says in Ephesians 4, we are, as it were, in a womb. We are fetuses in a developmental stage. We are being prepared for what God has for us we're being prepared for the world in which God always wanted us to be born into. But this life is just a preparatory stage. This life is, is, is but a developmental stage. This isn't what was meant to be our final destination ever. We're created for a world that outruns this world. We haven't even been born yet. We're spiritual fetuses in development. And if you understand that, if you see the world like that, it changes your perspective of everything, and it makes sense out of everything. Let me put it like this. Let's say that is another strange analogy. But uh, picture a super intelligent Einstein uh, baby, unborn baby. Einstein a hundredfold as an unborn baby. Okay, got it? 
This baby is so smart that as soon as it develops eyes, it begins to wonder about those eyes. Why do I have eyes? Why, this world that I live in here is nice, safe, and secure. I just love this amniotic fluid, but there's not much to see. Why do I got eyes? And I got this, I got this nose. I know it's meant for smelling, but there's nothing really to smell here. And I got this mouth for eating, but there's nothing to eat here, and my thumb is getting kind of boring. And, and I got these teeth for chewing. I don't want to chew on my thumb. What are those things for? And I got these legs, these incredible legs for running and for jumping, but there's nowhere to run and jump. Smart baby. I told you it was a smart baby. Okay, buy the story. Make me feel good. Yeah, right, Greg. Yeah, we're following you. And this baby, being so smart, maybe would know about other babies, how they pass through the, the, the utero walls, and, and, and they go on the other side. They leave the womb. And that's scary for these babies. Man, it doesn't look like it's going to fit, and every mother knows it doesn't fit, but there it is. It's like, whoa. I don't want to go through there. There's no way you can survive that. Why, your head would be crushed if nothing else. And, you know, you're leaving, so it probably looks like death. You know, it would look like death. Another person died. They just went through those little, little wall. But this baby maybe would begin to think this, especially if it had a word of revelation from the outside. Never mind that one. That <laughs> maybe these eyes, these eyes were meant for what's beyond this little womb. Maybe this nose is preparing me for something beyond the womb. Maybe this mouth that's made for chewing is made to chew food beyond this womb. And maybe these legs are made to, to, for, for a use outside of this womb. And that, I submit, is exactly the situation that we human beings in this present stage are like. We have got spiritual capacities and spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst, spiritual desires that just far outrun anything this world can offer. The longings for meaning and for purpose and for fulfillment, it never seems to be met. However good your life may go, you still have a vacuum in your heart. What the meaning of the resurrection is, what it does for you, how it changes your perceptions of things is that it tells you that some of your spiritual equipment that you got, the spiritual eyes and nose and mouth and legs that you have, the longings that you have in your heart, you have it because you were never meant to stay here in the first place. You're going through a gestation period, but what the gestation period for is for the birth. And death isn't the end of the whole thing. It's not the culmination as a tragic ridicule on the meaning of our life. It's the beginning of the whole thing. It's what we're prepared for. That's when you're born on the other side. The meaning of death is utterly transformed, especially when you understand the Bible says, and this resonates with your heart if you follow it. This isn't pie-in-the-sky stuff. Your heart says yes to it if you listen to it, that this land that we're prepared for, that God always, that God always desired humanity to be born into, is a place where there is no more sorrow, there are no more tears to wipe away every tear from our eyes, and we shall dwell in the full presence of God and all of his joy and all of his peace and all of his love. In fact, the Bible says that the full inheritance of God he's going to give to his children. That what Christians have now, the joy that we have now, is but a small down payment for what God has in store for those who love him. Paul can go so far as to say that the eye hasn't seen, the ear hasn't heard, it's never even entered in the imagination of the human being the things that God has for, in store for them. What it means is that everything we were ever made to experience, life was not meant to be like this. This isn't the whole thing. It was never meant to be the whole thing. But everything that our heart desires will be fulfilled, and that's why you desire it. Everything your eyes can see, you're going to someday see, and everything you can smell, you'll someday smell, even though here it just doesn't make sense. The meaning of death is radically transformed when you believe in the resurrection. From a tragic end to a triumphal exit. Some of you know Chris Morgan. 
a young man in our congregation, 28 years old, found out several months ago that he has brain cancer. And the doctors say that there's very little they can do for him. They give, they've given him about a year to live. He's newly married. In fact, he and his wife right now are, are on uh, their first anniversary, and they're going back to where they had their honeymoon. The doctors say there's nothing they can do for him. And we, on the one hand, are praying for him to be healed because that would be such an incredible God-glorifying thing. And in obedience to the word of God and, and, and laying claim for what Jesus Christ has purchased for us on the cross of Calvary, we're interceding for him. And I encourage all of you, his name's Chris Morgan and, and his, his wife is, is Marcy, to be praying for them. We would love to see him healed, and he'd love to be healed. He's, 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 he's made in the image of God, and he has the, the desires that God had put in him. He wants to live. He wants to live out his life with his wife and have kids. At the same time, however... He is not afraid of dying. And I have never met a person that has faced death more courageously, faced the possibility of death more courageously than he is now doing it. In fact, several months ago, we were out uh, for breakfast and uh, talking about this stuff. And he said, he says, Greg, you know something? I sometimes get choked up. In fact, he got choked up when he was telling me. I get, I ch I get choked up when I think that a year from now, I might be in the presence of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot that I, I hate to leave. And there's, there's, a, there's a little fear there leaving this nice, secure womb that we're in. We don't know what's on the other side. But he says, but he said, in the end, there's a joy there. And it's not fear. Only a belief in the resurrection could do that for you. Resurrection changes the entire meaning of death. And therefore, it changes the entire meaning of life. What it means is this. The person who believes in the resurrection, who understands that this life is a gestation period, you don't become overly absorbed and try to find your life in the things of this world because you know that they're all transitory. They come to nothing. You still do it. You've you got to be involved in the world, but that's not what is the centrally important thing in your life. Your aspirations are for beyond. But not only that, the resurrection changes the entire way that we process suffering. It changes the entire way we think about suffering. What really gives pain in this life its sharpest edge is the feeling that this is the one shot we have to live and it's being taken from us. The person involved in a bad marriage is the sense that you're one shot at having a, 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 an intimate, loving, kind relationship with somebody. Your one shot to have a fulfilled marriage in life is gone and you're missing it. What really gives depression its sharpest edge and loneliness its sharpest edge and tragedy its sharpest edge is its sense of finality that it's never going to get better. The one chance you had, the one chance to grab all the gusto you could get, you're missing out on. What gives chronic sickness and, and disease, infirmities and, and, and crippledness its sharpest pain is the sense that your one train ride that you were on, you missed it. And there's nothing more to be said about it. It's the finality of it all. But if we know there's an end, if we can see that there's an end in sight, things are still painful and sorrowful, but the edge is taken off of them. It's kind of like little kids waiting in line to go on a, on a ride. You know, last year we went out to Universal Studios. You know, you ever been in lines in Universal Studios or Walt Disney World? You, you know, it's, 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 you go back and forth because they got these chains things. And it's, it's, it's just incredible. And you walk for a half hour and finally, you know, then you go this way and where is the end of this thing? And finally, you come to a sign that says, you know, an hour more and you'll be there. <laughs> and so you're hot, your legs are tired, you've been doing this for too long, you know, and the kids are getting ornery and criny and whiny and thirsty and hungry and everything else. they got to go to the bathroom. And it's a miserable thing. And if there's no end in sight, you know what? It would be totally miserable. Let's go to Disney World to wait in lines, you know. Oh, good. 
But if you can get the kids to think about the ride as they're beginning to whine, think about the ride. Oh, back to the future. You go into the dinosaur's mouth, then you go down a volcano, then you flip this way, and then you flip this way, and it's so much fun. Wow, we're going to scream, we're going to cry, we're going to laugh. Ha-ha. And they start to think about it and talk about it. Pretty soon it's not so hot, and they're not so hungry, and they don't have to go to the bathroom all that bad, and they're not so thirsty, and the line's not so long. You can endure, you can endure it if you see that there's, there's an end in sight. You can do it all the more gracefully to the degree that you have that end in mind, and that end is glorious. Is it worth waiting for? What the Bible says is that, you see, if you believe in the resurrection, and you're related to Jesus Christ, there is an end that is worth waiting for. This train ride is picking up speed, but it's not going nowhere, folks. It's going to a destination, and the destination is worth it. Paul has the audacity to say that the, the sufferings of this present age aren't worthy to be compared to the glory which God has in store for those who love him. And that's an outrageous claim because as far as I'm concerned, this world is pretty full of sorrow. And to say that you can't even make a comparison to the glory that is in heaven for those who love Christ, that just tells me that heaven's got to be one heck of a great place. But it will be worth it. Last December, just before Christmas, I, I um, saw on TV um, this, uh, it was a news report, Channel 5 News, and, and some organization was putting on this thing for... Um, uh, children at United Hospital, children who were, term who were terminally ill. And uh, part of this interview is they went around to the different kids who, who all had this terminal illness, and they, they asked them, what do you want for Christmas? And most of them gave kind of standard answers, you know, teddy bear, whatever. But there's this one little girl about five or six years old that was in, in this big body brace and, and kind of curled up and stuff, and they asked her, what do you want for Christmas? And I have no idea what was wrong with her. But they said, what do you want for Christmas? And she said, I just want to be able to do a cartwheel again. And there's a part of me, and I know there's a part of you, that just is really ticked off at the world if that is all there is to be said about this. If that is the end of the story, when that kid dies, inside of her heart, a normal five-year-old heart that just wants to do a cartwheel, used to do cartwheels, but now can't do it. If that's the final word, if this illness is the final word, this universe really stinks. It, it, it's a cruel kind of a joke. And I refuse to believe that that could be the last word. But I don't have to believe it. My heart says that can't be true, and my mind says that can't be true, and the Bible says that that's not true. What the resurrection means is that not being able to do cartwheels is not the final word because death is not the final word. Being crippled isn't the final word. Illness and infirmities and disease and blindness and deafness, that is not the final word. And the heartache that you carry, the burden that you have, the struggles that you go through, the sin that you wrestle with, none of that is the final word. The final word, if the resurrection is true, is that God's word is true. Jesus Christ is the final word. Victory over the grave is the final word. Good triumph over evil, that is the final word. Fulfillment of meaning, the fulfillment of your heart's desires, the fulfillment of the dreams that are in your mind, that is the final word. The final word is that this enemy that has infected this womb that we live in, that causes all this pain and all this woe, the Satan and all of his legion of demons, the final word is that they're going to be crushed, defeated, and thrown up and locked up in the pit of hell, never to bother us again. That's the victory of the grave. Praise the Lord. Oh, death, where's your sting? Where is it? Grim Reaper, we mock you. You don't mock us. The meaning of the resurrection, let me just close with this. Here's something that's the meaning of the resurrection. It's a letter I got two weeks ago from a lady in prison. I don't, I don't know who this person is. Um, I don't know anything about her other than what she said in this letter, but I know this much. She'd given up on life. 
she had had a, a, what she thought was an incurable drug problem, and somehow that drug problem resulted in the death of her little infant. I don't know how that happened, but she's in prison for it now. Um, she'd given up on life. She had attempted suicide uh, several times, lost all of her friends and most of her family, about as low as you can possibly get in life. Her profession totally gone. And somebody, either in this church or at Bethel, uh, gave her a copy of the letters that I had with my dad, uh, letters from a skeptic. And she read those, and the Lord used that to bring her to the point where she accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. Amen. And she wrote me this letter just kind of to say thanks for, you know, sharing that. And at the end of her letter, she says this. And this is, as far as I'm concerned, a letter like this is, is uh, more precious than, than it. Nothing's more rewarding. I, in fact, I, I shared this with my dad, and he started crying, um, which tells you a lot about what God's doing in my dad's heart. But she says, now I have, for the first time in my life, peace. In a women's penitentiary, the rest of her life pretty much thrown away, now she's got peace. And the reason she's got peace, among other things, is that she says, now I know that my little Missy is in heaven, and that I'll see her again someday, and that she forgives me. If you've got that to live for, you don't need anything else. Take away my freedom take away house, take away job, take away health, take away everything. But if you know that this is simply a transition period, this is a temporary prelude to when life is going to begin, it's durable. For those who are here who have got their own missies in their life, their own unrequited love in their life, their own prisons in your life, you may be here this morning. Like a little kid waiting in the hot sun in line, I encourage you to, to look at the resurrection. Paul always was doing that in his letters. Think about the hope. Think about the hope. Put it all in perspective. It reframes everything. You derive some comfort from that. Make it central to your life. Secondly, for those of you who are here this morning, and you know who you are, I don't, but if you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that here this morning. The warning of the Bible, and I just got to say it's because it's true, the warning of the Bible is that there, there will be many, those who refuse to submit to the Lordship of Christ. It's like severing your umbilical cord here in the womb. And you're born stillborn. You're not born the way God wants you to be born. The Bible calls it hell. But for all who receive him, you're born into full life. And I encourage you this morning to secure that umbilical cord. Accept him as the Lord and Savior of your life. The Bible says that only, all it takes is believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. And as I dismiss others, there'll be some up here, two or three or four people, who would just be willing to pray with you in that prayer and maybe get you started on this walk. It's so simple, but it makes an eternity of a difference. Let's stand. Close in prayer. Lord, while you were here, there was no one who knew your secret ambition. But Lord, this side of the, this side of the resurrection, we see what it was. Your heart's desire was to die for us and to rise for us. And we can only say thank you for it. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning that don't know you. Lord, even as I'm praying right now, Lord, by your spirit, call them forward. Their heart hungers for you, whether they know it or not. Lord, bring them forward to receive you and to enter into your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, we can go forth from here with that celebrational resurrection life radiating from us. That, that every day would, in fact, be an Easter where we celebrate and keep our eyes focused on your resurrection and on what awaits those who love you. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. We bless you for it in your name.